But something happened that night where I went from being a Christian to a disciple. And those are two different things. You see, a Christian is someone who has prayed and said, Lord, forgive me of my sins, and I believe in you, and please come into my life, and you are born again. But a disciple takes the next step. A disciple takes the next step, and we're going to get into that in our study today. Jesus is going to choose the first of the disciples, Peter, James and John are mentioned in this passage, Luke 4 and 5, but also in the group is Andrew. He's mentioned in Matthew chapter 4, the four fishermen who become those first disciples of the Lord. And so far, Luke has recorded an accurate account of the birth of Jesus, his dedication in the temple, Baptism by John the Baptist, the announcement by the Father, you are my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. His genealogy verifying his right to the throne. His prayer and fasting for 40 days, preparing himself for ministry. The miracles that he's doing, verifying his claim to being the Messiah. There were specific miracles that were predicted in the Old Testament that he wouldn't just say he was the Messiah. He would show it. He would prove it. The crowds are beginning to press into Jesus to see his power. And the people are now going after him. They're searching for him. Jesus in Luke 4.31, where we're going to pick up today, now goes down to Capernaum. And this is where the fishermen are. The amazing question is, how did these fishermen, these common men, not religious leaders, not priests, the very people we wouldn't think of as being great spiritual leaders, how did they suddenly decide to leave everything and follow after Jesus? You kind of get this impression like, like, well, Jesus like pointed to them and said, follow me. And they just suddenly left everything and followed after the Lord. And it's not quite that radical. It wasn't that irrational. And in fact, there was a whole series of events that led up to them making a reasoned commitment to saying, you know what? We are going to leave everything and follow after Jesus. Here's a basic question, is what is a disciple? If a disciple is different from a Christian, what is a disciple? The very word disciple means pupil or student. And so I can be born again, but not be a student. I can pray the prayer of salvation but the Lord wants to take you to the next step. You're born again. You're a baby. You're in the family. You're learning a few things, but maybe still doing your own thing, going your own course. A disciple is one who sits under a teacher 
and then through the course of learning starts to become like that teacher. And Jesus will say that in Luke 640. He says, everyone who is perfectly trained will be like his teacher. And that's really our ultimate goal is not just to be born again and get into heaven, but for our very lives to be conformed from what we were to become like Jesus. That's your goal. Romans 8.29 says, For whom God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Working in our lives. So let's pick up at Luke 4.31 in this story. Then he went down to Capernaum, a city of Galilee, and was teaching them on the Sabbaths. And they were astonished at his teaching, for his word was with authority. Now, here's the series of events, if you're taking notes with me. They start to observe things that convince them to make that decision to be a disciple. This first one that we see in Luke's story is that they see Jesus teach with authority that he taught with a spiritual authority that was different from the priests, the Sadducees, whoever were the religious leader. Now, these were religious people. They knew the scriptures. They were used to sitting in synagogue. But suddenly they hear Jesus and there's something different. You know, it's hard to share the Bible with religious people especially people who have grown up in church. They've heard preaching. And I, I remember suddenly hearing that the word was different during the Jesus Movement revival than what I had heard growing up. Now, in the Jewish cultures, the way that the people heard the scriptures taught was a priest would read a scripture and then he wouldn't have any conviction or studied preparation like we know of church today. They would typically say, well, Rabbi so-and-so says it means this. And Rabbi so-and-so believes it means this. And they would just kind of go on this, this explaining the scriptures in a way that was no personal conviction, no commitment to it, no personal experience to it. It was just, well, we've heard that it says like this. You remember Jesus will say, you have heard that it was said, but I say unto you in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew. So there was suddenly an authority and a power in Jesus' teaching that was completely different than what they were used to hearing. It was also, they were hearing not only the authority of his, his teaching, but they were hearing that his words were gracious. The gracious words that he will speak with. Legalistic teaching is often harsh. It is judgmental. And honestly, that was the type of teaching I was used to as a child. Kind of harsh, critical. Well, you call yourself a Christian and you do this. 
That was that whole culture I grew up. And you, we know that phrase legalism. Do you know that phrase legalism in Christianity? Legalism is essentially God will love you if you keep this law or if you keep this church rule. If you are good, then God will love you. Now, we know that that's not what the Bible teaches, and yet somehow that message subtly creeps into the church, doesn't, doesn't it? And we do. We know it's wrong, but we kind of go with it. And we try and show we're going to be good, and we try harder. And I've shared before that in the 70s, when I was a teenager, the very definition of a good Christian that I was told was don't have long hair and don't listen to that rock music. I thought, well, if that's it, that's all it took to be a good Christian, then, well, that's easy. I didn't want to do it anyway, but. (laughs) And suddenly when I began to hear of the grace of God, that God wasn't angry with me, God wasn't keeping me at arm's distance until I kept the rules. I suddenly started hearing of the love of God. It was so simple, but it was so powerful. For God so loved the world. What? Wait a second. That's radical. And as you shared last week, that's Old Testament. That's what the Jews would call the Shema, Deuteronomy 6.4. His hero Israel, the Lord your God is one. You shall, what? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, and your mind. That is the heart of the law. And yet somehow in religion, we forget the heart and get to the rules. So you and I... We're disciples, and we have to be careful that when we're telling people in the world about God, that we get to the heart of God. That we're not coming across critical or judgmental. Or, you know what, you wouldn't be having that problem in your life if you went to church. Sorry, I didn't mean to look right at you there, Sydney, but you were a safe place to look. <laughs> Those kinds of words I would, I would hear out of people's mouths when I was a Christian. Oh, you, a real Christian doesn't do that. And suddenly these fishermen are hearing Jesus' words. They have power and they're gracious. Suddenly, it caught their attention, and I want to tell you, I want to be like Jesus. I want to teach that way. I want to have messages for you that have the anointing of God, and they are gracious, and they are touching your heart, and you're genuinely learning of the heart of God. And God help me, and I just pray week after week that I, when I'm with you, that I don't miss the mark, that I don't have just a well-prepared, technically accurate message, but I miss the heart of it. So easy to do. A second thing in your notes, note that they observe not only his, the authority of his teaching, but secondly, they notice that even the demons obey him. 
The demons obey him. Let's pick up in verse 33 to 37. Now in the synagogue, there was a man who had a spirit of an unclean demon. And he cried out with a loud voice saying, let us alone. What do we have to do with you, Jesus of Nazareth? Did you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him saying, be quiet and come out of him. And when the demon had thrown him in their midst, it came out of him and did not hurt him. Verse 36, then they were all amazed and spoke among themselves saying, what a word this is for with authority and power, he commands the unclean spirits and they come out. And the report about him went out into every place in the surrounding region. So what was different about this than what they were used to seeing? Did you know there were Jewish exorcists and demon possession was common in those days? And it's common in other countries today. We don't tend to see it that much here in America, but you will occasionally come across it and it is still a real thing in the world. What the Jews were used to seeing were these Jewish exorcists that would spend days chanting and repeating the name of God, hoping to land on some phrase that would compel the demon to leave. More of these religious rituals. And maybe after two or three days, maybe the demon would respond and leave. And here Jesus just speaks a word and the demon obeys him. Don't you see how that would catch the attention of the common man, the common man. They culturally, they were religious, but how much they were actually committed to God was a different question. The third thing that they see in verses 38 to 41, they see that Jesus, that, that, that disease obeys Jesus. Even disease as they bring people to him to be healed. Pick up at verse 38 with me. Luke writes, now he arose from the synagogue and entered Simon's house. Now, all of you know who Simon is? Simon is Peter, Simon Peter. But Simon's wife's mother was sick with a high fever and they made request of him concerning her. And so he stood over her and rebuked the fever. And it left her. And immediately he arose, she arose and served them. When the sun was setting, all those who had were, that were sick with various diseases were brought to him. And he laid his hands on every one of them and healed them. And demons also came out of many crying out and saying, you are the Christ, the son of God. And he rebuked them saying, did rebuke them and did not allow them to speak for they knew that he was the Christ. Now, Jesus heals. We all know that, that Jesus heals. And in fact, Jesus heals today. But he just spoke and the, the sickness left from Peter's mother-in-law. Now, what I find interesting is not just that, that Jesus healed the sick, but he's doing it at Peter's house. 
And we're looking at way forward. We'll get into the middle of chapter five when Peter and the others suddenly make a decision to leave their old lives and completely follow after the Lord. And you say, how did that happen? Now, you and I may not be called to leave your job or leave your everything you're doing and just go out and serve the Lord. But absolutely, the same decision is being made in your lives. Do you see that? You could stay at your job, do everything you're doing now, but something has to change in your heart. And that change is a sudden commitment of your heart to be a disciple of Jesus. Where you're not living for the other things that you lived for. Now you're living for Jesus. I remember making that decision. Even going forward a few years after uh, that Saturday night concert when I was about 17, 18 years old. Then in the early 80s, I was in a band and I met, uh, I asked the backup singer uh, out on a date. I played drums in this band in Long Beach, California. And I thought, wow, the backup singer, she's pretty cute. She's sitting over there. We got married in 1982. See, I can't remember. It's been, that means next year is our 40th anniversary. But I, we went out, got married, had our first daughter the next year, who, by the way, is going to come and lead worship for us next month, uh, Lauren, our oldest daughter. I, but I was still pursuing a career in music, hoping at each connection, each person I would meet with any celebrity that, oh, this is my opportunity. And I remember through a few disappointments, things I thought would work out in the music business and Christian music, I thought, uh, my wife said to me, well, what would you like to do when you grow up? <laughs> and I remember saying, you know, the, what I would really like to do is to go into the ministry. And I think I was 23 years old. And what a major change of my heart that was. I didn't quit music. I still play music. I quit pursuing it for myself. And I discovered that the Lord wanted to take that thing that I loved and use it for him. That's the key here. And we're going to get there as we get farther into the story. But Jesus goes to Simon Peter's house. How many of you have ever had the Lord show up at your house in the middle of a crisis? Let me see your hands. Hands. Keep your hands up. This is a predictable story. The very way that the Lord is helping you go from being a Christian to a disciple is in the middle of a crisis. He shows up in your house and you need him more than you've ever needed him before. And this is not a decision whether to go to church or not whether to volunteer for a ministry or not. 
It's not even a decision whether to keep the rules of the Bible or not that to you tell everybody you're a good Christian. This is suddenly a genuine need. You need the Lord more than you've ever needed him. And he has, he has helped you. How many of you have ever seen the Lord suddenly meet you in a crisis of need in your home? I have. Uh, many times. And it's in those revelations that hopefully your, your heart starts to change into being a person who really follows the Lord. Who really follows the Lord. Verse 42 says, now when it was day, he departed and went into a deserted place and he, and the crowd sought him and came to him and he tried to keep him from them. But he said to them, I must preach the kingdom of God to the other cities also, because for this purpose, I have been sent. And he was preaching in the synagogues of Galilee. Now here's the last step. The fishermen have heard Jesus. They've heard the authority of his word. They've seen that demons obey him. They've seen that disease obeys him. And now all of that gets to a moment of decision. And this next story, I wanted to flow all of this together to help you see that it's all connected. It's not a separate story. We're going to go right into the first 11 verses of Luke chapter 5, just to see how this all works together. Luke writes, and so it was, as the multitude pressed about him to hear the word of God, that he stood by the lake of Gennesaret and saw two boats standing by the lake. But the fishermen had gone from them and were washing their nets. He got into one of the boats with boats, which was Simon's, and asked him to put out a little, little from the land. And he sat down and he taught the multitudes from the boat. So because of all the miracles, the people are pressing into Jesus. There's so many people pressing into Jesus that Jesus needs a little space. He sees the fishing boats there. He decides to get into one of the boats. And did you notice that the fishermen were not listening to Jesus? They were off washing their nets. Now, you notice, we're going to notice later on, that Peter will say to Jesus, we've fished all night and caught nothing. And yet they're, they're washing their nets because it's been in the water. There's, they've taken care of it. They've put away their gear. Jesus sees the boats there and gets into one of them. And purely by coincidence, whose boat does he get into? Simon's boat. Do you see a pattern here? When he had stopped speaking, he said to Simon, launch out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. But Simon answered and said to him, Master, we have toiled all night and caught nothing. Nevertheless, at your word, I will let down the net. Now, why would Peter say at your word? Because of all that we've just covered, he has seen the authority and the certainty of the word of Jesus. This is not just some random thing. Okay, Peter's not passive. He's not compliant. 
He's a pretty strong-willed man. And all that we have already seen, the authority of Jesus' word, his authority over demons, his authority over disease, has brought Peter to the moment where he says, okay, I think I'll listen to you. And I think I'll even do what you're asking me to do. I will let down the net. And when he had done this, they caught a great number of fish, and their net was breaking. So they signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them. And they came and filled both the boats so that they began to sink. And when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees, saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man. Here is the moment. In Simon Peter's life, when he becomes a believer. Do you see how Jesus worked in his life gradually to bring him to a moment where he, this fourth point is Peter tests the word of Jesus. He put it to the test. And I think it's fascinating that Jesus asked Peter to believe him in the very area where Peter is an expert. All of you are experts in some area of of life. In your occupation, this is Peter's occupation. And yet in this very area where Peter knows better He does what Jesus says anyway, even though to the expert, it doesn't make any sense. So that when the great fish of uh, a catch of fish come in, Peter knows full well, there is no good explanation for this catch of fish, except the authority of Jesus word. If he wasn't a fisherman, he wouldn't know enough to come to that conclusion. He could go, well, maybe something changed. Maybe the weather changed. Maybe suddenly something happened where the fish suddenly showed up. No, Peter's going, listen, we just fished all night. We've already done this. We know the fish aren't there. And yet, Lord, you said it and it happened. And I do believe that every one of us will come to a moment where you have to, you, you will be asked to put his word to the test. Will you believe him or not? And, and it's all kinds of things every day. Your relationships, your job, your finances, your health. Those people you have to see for Christmas. You're fine and they'll sudden, suddenly something happens and you're thrown back into a panic. Nevertheless, at your word, Lord, I'll do this. Let me tell you, in the ministry, and I've been a pastor since 1993, officially as an ordained pastor, there are so many times when there was no reason to be in the ministry except the Lord asked me to. 
so many young men go into the ministry for some personal reason. It seems exciting. You, you want, you know, you have these grand ideas of planning a church somewhere. People like you whenever you speak in front of them. Not always, but sometimes. And over the years of being, if you're in the ministry or if you're serving the Lord in any way, things will not work out. There will be those seasons. And when I was young, I didn't know that, that the ministry just has these seasons that are exciting, these other ex- seasons that are really, really difficult. People love you, people leave. People come to church, people leave the church. And you always take it personally. And now that as I work with pastors around the country, I am able to say, whatever season you're in, if it's a hard season, this is my favorite word, normal. If this is a hard season of ministry, and you have to get through something difficult, I want you to know, pastor, in Georgia, in Eastern Oregon, in California, in Oregon, Washington, I tell pastors, what you're going through is normal. There are times of harvest. There are times where the field is is dormant. And it is hard to get through Seasons of your life and serving the Lord where it doesn't feel like you're accomplishing anything. It even feels like you're going backwards. And what happens is your heart and your motives get refined. And the very last reason on your checklist to stay serving the Lord is, Lord, if you ask me to do this, I will do it. And the Lord says, Great. I'm glad you finally got to that one. Now we can get busy. Peter says, look, we've already fished. We haven't caught anything. It's been a long night. We've cleaned up our nets, put them all away. Jesus, really? I know that was Peter's tone. I've, I watched the movie. I, I'm sure. Peter says, really, Jesus? Really? He goes, oh, well, if you, if you say so, I will do it. And again, there are those moments where you are passively watching the work of Jesus. And then there are times when it becomes personal and you have to put his word to the test in your own life. And really, was there really any risk of failure for the fishermen? No. Because trusting the Lord is sure. His word is sure. You go down to verse 9. Luke writes, for he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of fish which they had taken. And so also were James and John, the sons of Zebedee, who were partners with him. And Jesus said to Simon, do not be afraid. 
From now on, you will catch men. So when he had brought their boats to land, they forsook all and they followed him. I have come to that moment in my life. It wasn't in the Jesus movement, that decision to shift and then follow the Lord and serving the Lord happened when I was about 25. Shifting from a career in music to in ministry, I still played music. But suddenly the Lord would take the very thing that I knew well, and he would use it for his purposes. And I love that about the Lord, because all of you have gifts and amazing abilities that the Lord has given you. You were, you were born with those things. And it's interesting that you can use those things for yourself and for enjoyment, which is perfectly fine. But the Lord would also take the things that are really what you know best and suddenly take it and use it for something more. And the fact that the Lord is pleased to do that is amazing. And that I get to do this. How has the Lord worked in your life? I think just right out of this passage is amazing. There's six things just to remind you of from this passage. Number one is that God is revealing himself to you in your daily life. In ways that you're not even paying attention, maybe now, maybe something at work tomorrow, you're just suddenly seeing him work in your life. Secondly, he's preparing you for a unique calling. You know, the Bible says that, that every one of us fits a unique and special place in the body of Christ or the family of God. And just as your physical body is made up of many members, all serving a special purpose, but fitted together, so also are we and the church. Every one of you is unique. There are no duplicates here. There are no duplicates. So you get to discover how God wants to work through your life. One of my life verses, Ephesians 2.10, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. God has prepared a good work for you to do, and now he's preparing the work, or you for that work. You are his workmanship. And I've always thought through my years, Lord, please help me be ready for the work that you've already prepared for me to do. Help me to get there. A third reminder lesson from today is that your natural gifts may be related to that unique work that God has for you to do. And often, your spiritual gifts are so familiar to you, you don't recognize them as special. I've had so many people say, well, I don't know what my talent is, my gifts. They're often the very thing that you're already doing and using, and you just can't see it because you think, well, everybody can do this. 
No, that's who you are. The fourth thing I want you to write down is that you will be tested in small ways in your life. You will be tested in your life. Worship team, why don't you go ahead and come up as I'm just wrapping up these last couple of things. Number five is that through these ways that God is working, the ways that God is testing you, you are going to be, you are going to discover the power of God in your life personally. That moment like Peter and the fishermen, where they suddenly discovered the power of God. Now they had already seen the power of God, but suddenly something was different about that moment. And there was that breakthrough. And the last thing is that I pray that you become a disciple. Now, I don't know any of you well enough to say you are or aren't a disciple. I just want you to be aware that it's possible for you to be a Christian and sit here week after week and not be a disciple. Maybe you've never heard anybody say that before. So I'll try and say it in the most harsh, judgmental tone I can find. That's a big commitment, isn't it? Going from saying, Lord, save me, to Lord, I will follow you with my whole life. That's a pretty big change in your life. And so the question is, what's going to happen if I do that? What about my plans? And here's what we know. We know that God loves you and that his plans for you are good. Just like you want your children to trust you with plans you have made, your heavenly father wants you to trust him. He wants you to trust, he wants you to trust him that he is good, his plans are good, and you don't have to hold on with this white knuckle grip of control. You know who you are who are control freaks. His ways are sure. And he loves you. And his power and grace are amazing. Amen. Let's stand together.